The Water Values Podcast, Session 88. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Gabe McGinnis. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey and thanks for joining me. I hope everyone had a safe and happy 4th of July weekend. We have a great show for you today, but first I need to say thank you to Mark Wendy and Goody for Hoodie for leaving not only a five-star rating on iTunes for the podcast, but also leaving great reviews as well. So thanks so much to Mark Wendy and to Goody for Hoodies. And I apologize for being a little late on acknowledging you both, so... Uh, much appreciated for those uh, five-star ratings and great reviews. I also want to remind you that you can help support the Water Values Podcast by making a donation in whatever do- denomination you see fit. Uh, you can donate online at thewatervalues.com. <clears throat> there's also uh, there's a little donate button on the right side of the screen. And a big thank you to those of you who have already donated. You've really helped defray the costs of web hosting, media hosting, and the other expenses that go into producing the podcast. So thank you very much. I greatly appreciate your support. Well, today, Reese Tisdale, the president of Bluefield Research, joins us, and you're in for a treat. Bluefield Research is a market research firm, as its name implies, and Reese discusses some of the origins and methods for collecting and developing market intelligence for the water sector. Uh, And Reese goes further and provides a tremendous amount of insight into what's going on in the water market, especially from an infrastructure perspective. So, uh, you're really going to enjoy this. He's absolutely fantastic. And with that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, hello, Reese. Thanks so much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate your time. Uh, for starters, could you please tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? I think it all began, at least the first time I thought about water was back in El Salvador 20-plus years ago. And I lived in a rural community. It was post-Civil War in El Salvador and just after the war. And so there was a lot of aid money going into various communities around the country. And I lived in a house at that time at the very end of a water line. It was a gravity-fed water system. There's a tank basically at the top of the hill that ran down, down the hill. And everybody tapped into that line. And so by the time basically it got to my house, there was usually no water. It would drip for 15, 20 minutes, once or twice a week. And so one of the projects, I was working with the Department of Water in El Salvador and some aid agencies trying to figure out ways to improve the system. And we went through this whole exercise of figure finding a way for funding, but to basically rehabilitate the system so everybody could at least have a reliable source of water instead of, you know, hopefully getting it once or twice a week. Went through this, went through several presentations, and at the end of the process after, I mean, it went on for months and months. It's a rural community in El Salvador. It wasn't big money. I think the community was going to put labor in to help lay the pipes and everything. They ended up refusing the project because they didn't trust the government. They said, we don't trust the government, so we just assume live with the system that we have which is broken and has its shortcomings, but that's kind of the way it's going to be. Wow. So that was, yeah, that was really the first time that it ever dawned upon me about water. And, you know, otherwise I hadn't really thought about it other than swimming in it or when I was thirsty. Right, right. Now, uh, so 
What, what were you doing in El Salvador? Just kind of curious. Yeah, so I was in the Peace Corps there. Yep. And so I did, you know, a little agriculture type work, but the nature of grassroots development, I suppose, is, you know, you kind of work on what the community wants or needs. You know, I had an education. I had resources that they may or may not have had. And so, and I had time and that was my job. So I would just dedicate my time to helping solve their problems, hopefully. And in some cases it worked and in this case it didn't. So <laughs> that's the way it goes. So a failure was a learning experience. So, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's with this genesis of your interest in water there, wh what are you doing with, with, with water now? Yeah, so I think, you know, what ended up happening, you know, I've gone through different phases, like many people, different phases of my life. I, you know, I came back to the States after about three years, started doing some groundwater remediation for oil and gas companies, trying to work on their problems that they were having around the country, whether it be at uh, oil terminals, gas stations even. And one thing led to another. I ended up going to business school and sort of looking at company strategies. And then, in about 2005, 2006, I serendipitously now that I look back at it, fell into market research. And we were looking at the renewable power sector. And, you know, the power sector is so full of information. There's data. There are lots of companies supplying that sector. Um, I mean, it's, in many cases, it's real-time data uh, of looking at what's happening at the various utilities, renewable power developers, supplying data to the market, supply chain analysis. And that evolved over time. And it was a really successful business looking at that sector, uh, working with, you know, a couple of people who one thing led to another in about 2010, 2011 is when we started saying, well, what other sectors are out there that we feel that there's a, a paucity of information where there's an opportunity for people like us to help people understand what's happened, market trends, understand, you know, data, data impacts or, you know, strategic uh, trends in the market for companies. We began to incubate what is now Bluefield Research. And that's sort of what we are now is a market research company that helps companies address water opportunities, uh, understand market trends, and help develop strategies in the water space within the various ver verticals in which water is applied. So as you could imagine, that applies to the power sector, it applies to uh, the municipal water sector, obviously it applies to you know hydraulic fracturing, food and beverage, and so forth. Yeah. So. It, it very broad spectrum of, of uh, interests that that are going on there in the water sector. Um, I'm just kind of, how, how do you gather the information that is relevant to your customer base? I mean, what, you know, what, what kind of information are you looking at? How do you, and how do you get it? So you're looking for the secret sauce. <laughs> um, basically, um, it's also the hardest part. Um, I mean, I think time and time again, whether it be through guests that you've had on, on your podcast as well as speaking to other people, I mean, the water industry is so fragmented. Um, people have been in it for ages and ages. So what we try to do is um, we leverage public sources of information. So it's out there. Quite honestly, it just takes a lot of time to go through. Like an example would be municipal utilities. 
most municipal utilities, let's say 49, 50,000 of them have capital improvement plans. So what we do is we go through capital improvement plans. We try to figure out, okay, well, how are they spending their money or how are they planning to spend their money? What is it allocated towards? Is it allocated towards wastewater? Is it allocated towards water, smart water in some cases, uh, pipes, pumps, valves? Every utility breaks up differently. And so we leverage public sources like that. I think equally important, if not more important, is, speak, or is speaking to companies or utilities, people in the sector themselves who are actually doing work. What are they seeing? What are the trends? Are there certain uh, materials or certain technologies that are coming online that are more cost effective? Um, understanding how they see things. And what we do is we try, we take that, the, the public information, the conversations gathered through and information gathered through primary research. And then we use our own brains and our own knowledge and experience to triangulate what we think is happening in the market. Yeah, so uh, that's a lot of information that you're trying to synthesize there. Uh, let, and we could go, we could take this in a lot of different directions. Um, but you, you've kind of, I mean, one of the things you mentioned was pumps and essentially infrastructure of all those municipal utilities that you're you're digging through their CIPs. Um, what what's the scope? I mean, is it? It sounds like it's at least U.S. Uh, so where are your operations located? So, currently we have uh, offices in Barcelona, Spain, and then in Boston, Massachusetts, in the U.S. Those are our two primary locations. We have a couple other people scattered about about the world doing different things, but that's really where the the bulk of our research comes out of. I think, you know, as far as scope goes, I mean, it is a lot. I think that's one of the biggest difficulties about what we do. What we're trying to do, we've tried to be disciplined about how we approach things, um, picking our sectors wisely. But I think more importantly, we take feedback from our clients and prospective clients. People are asking us for information. They're asking us certain questions that help guide our research agenda. I think, you know, and just for clarity's sake, how do we deliver that information? We've got, we sell reports off the shelf. Not everything we produce is sold off the shelf. We have insight services, which is our bread and butter, where companies basically pay an annual subscription or fee to receive ongoing access to a range or suite of research that we deliver through the course of the year. But they also receive access to our analysts. So it's an open line. You get on the bat phone and call up and say, hey, I've, have you heard about this M&A deal? Or do you know anything about this policy in this state? How is it influencing private water investment, for instance? Is that uh, something you could help me figure out? And so it's that relationship that we develop over the course of time with companies, and that's how we really we help them. And then I think thirdly is something. sometimes things become so customized to a specific product or a piece of equipment or a market even, that companies will come to us for consulting. And that's that would be the third pillar of, uh, of support that we provide companies. So in terms of, uh, let's, just, let's just focus on the infrastructure right now. Uh, We've seen from EPA, from the American Water Works Association, uh, you know, WEF, Water Environment Federation, um, we've seen all these estimates of how much uh, 
infrastructure is going to cost, well, you know, what our deficiency is, how much is needed to, to get us back to a, a, a point where we have reliable and systems that can deliver safe and clean wastewater uh, water and can treat our wastewater before it gets released back to the environment. So what what is what is your research coming out with along those lines in terms of what the infrastructure needs are? Well, I think what we've done, and this is quite honestly back to my point a little while ago, was clients have come to us and said, we just need to know the size of these markets. Like, what's the size of these infrastructure markets? Because they're relying on needs-based assessments provided by the EPA or American uh, Society of Civil Engineers and so on. So, uh, or the, I think the governor's, the governor's association for lack of a better way to put it, um, they put out needs assessment that ranged from one to $3 trillion uh, to address water infrastructure needs in the US. What we've done is basically step back and said, okay, is there any way we could get to a more real time, a more realistic number um, for our clients and, and break out of where that money is going. So as I mentioned, we looked at capital improvement plans were the baseline. So looking at the CIPs, trying to figure out what are the trends for the largest utilities in the US and basically taking that, making assumptions based on that you know, various uh, spending per capita, per utility, and then we overlay that with what's happening in the various states or regions. So at some point you do have to make assumptions. And what we've most recently come out with is about a $530 billion CapEx forecast for the, over the next 10 years for the U.S. And, and that's water, wastewater, stormwater? Exactly. All the- that's, that's all in. Okay. That's all in. Is do you have a breakdown for like what what the split is between all those? Yeah, I do. I mean, so it's you know when it comes to you know simply put water and wastewater, and within wastewater, I'm lumping in stormwater with that uh, for the purpose in as far as the number I'm about to give you. So water is about two hundred and fifty-seven billion dollars, and wastewater is about two hundred seventy-five billion. So it's about a fifty-two forty-eight split um, between water and wastewater. Well, wow, that's uh, to me. That's kind of a little surprising that though that it's that close. Um, it just always seems to me that wastewater, there's a lot more. Um, there's more risk there, and there's more. It just it has always seemed uh, that they're a little farther behind than the drinking water side. Um, that yeah, yeah. Well, I think the stormwater plays a role in that. If you take stormwater out. You know, what we're starting to see because of obviously the the consent orders, the EBA consent decrees being signed with the utilities. I mean, that in itself, just for stormwater alone, puts about $29 billion over the next, through, I think, 2037, which is beyond our forecast range. But, you know, it's still a, a chunk of it. And then, um, but there are other consent decrees. I think, I think all in we have about 85 consent decrees for utilities around the U.S. Um, and then, you know, I think part of that is, like I said, you know, what we're seeing are certain trends, um, like wastewater reuse, um, deployment of new systems or treatment systems and piping networks to support wastewater reuse in the U.S. That's catching on in places like Texas or California, Arizona, and Florida. Um, 
Yeah, I, you know, when we went into this, we didn't have any preconceived notions about what we thought it was going to, you know, maybe we had hunches. What we did is we basically just laid out, okay, what are the utilities telling us? And this is kind of where it led us. Yeah, and, and these numbers, you're deriving it from, again, from those CIPs that, that municipalities have have put out there. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, are, are you seeing, like, regional differences? Um, and let me let me kind of give some background on this because, you know, we, we're talking stormwater, and uh, it would seem to me that in the Northeast and Midwest, where you have a lot of older systems, a lot of combined sewer system, that's where – a lot of the a lot of the capex for stormwater is going to come in. At least that's my my without knowing any better. That's my that's my hunch. I mean, exactly. So what what kind of regional differences are you seeing in, uh, between all these CIPs? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think when we started breaking out regional breakouts, the the Midwest was you know so you know the number I gave you a little while ago was across the board. But when you start looking at the Midwest, you know. Wastewater, including stormwater, is a big chunk of what their spend is going to be, um, as well as in the mid-Atlantic. So because of those consent orders, but also since the 1930s, that's where a lot of those combined stormwater systems had been installed. And now I think everybody's beginning to realize that this is a problem. And now we're you know trying to, to mitigate that. Yeah, and so do you have any... Um... Any, any thoughts on what that says for rates? Because one of the, one of the things that just seems absolutely crazy to me is that, you know, water can cost less in Phoenix, Arizona than it does in a great Lake state. Um, and then all with all this, these capital improvements that are needed, it's going to drive those costs up even higher. And so sure. it, it, that, that's really hard for me to wrap my mind around in terms of pricing of water. I mean, I think, you know, as we see, you know, rates across the board are going up. But when you're, you know, when they're increasing by a percentage, a percentage of nothing is nothing. <laughs> so, um, but they are on the rise. And, you know, I used to even step back and say, you know, what would be interesting is if, and obviously this will never happen and can't happen, but it'd be interesting to see if all those pipes were above ground. And then everybody could see the 250,000 leaks um, of all the pipes, you know, everybody would know exactly what the infrastructure problem was, and they'd probably be more willing to uh, to pay. Um, but other, because it's in the ground, no one sees it out of sight, out of mind. And I think, you know, the, basically, the, I mean, to your point about pricing from Arizona to Michigan, the, the fundamental structure or fragmentation of the system, there's no centralized authority controlling any of this it's hard to put apples and apples together um, and, and makes quite honestly our job difficult. But I think, you know, and this is why we're getting into business companies that are looking to supply or play in the, in the water sector, it's difficult for them and it's difficult to develop a coherent strategy. Yeah. So you, you guys have a real value add service because you're, you are synthesizing all the inf information and making sense of a lot of the, the differences and you can point out, you know, nuances and how the markets are, are working. Right. Yeah. Uh, what about uh, the difference between municipal and privately owned utilities? You know, what's, what does the infrastructure spend look like between, 
in you know when you're comparing those types of utilities? You know, in, in our analysis, what we have actually a, a specific private water service. Um, I think you know that addresses what's happening with the with the IOUs. Let's say I think is is what we're calling the private water players in the U.S. The um, we didn't break out specifically the spend, infrastructure spend, um, comparing one to the other. But I think across the board, you know, the private water companies, they cost more in many cases. And, you know, for a number of reasons, one, they're a private water company, they're coming in. Um, they have different tax burdens, clearly, than a, than a public water system, since they're private. Uh, I think also, the private water companies, but you know they um, they bring a different value add and experience, and you know able to introduce different solutions that may not happen at a municipal um, at a publicly owned utility. I mean, I think overall, as if if your listeners don't already know, I mean, I think when, when we look at it. Private water players make up about 15% of the U.S. water market, which some people say, oh, it's small, it's not that much. 15% of the U.S. water market is actually pretty substantial, I would say. Oh, yeah, uh, I'd and, agree with and, that. And it seems to be growing, and there are opportunities popping up, both through M&A, but I think what we're also seeing is uh, new players getting into the market or hoping to get into the market. Right, right. I, you know, I think you're exactly right because they're – you know, going back to that, that I think you said 570 billion, um, or 530 billion. I can't, but 530, 530, 530 billion. Um, that, that kind of money is going to be really tough. I think for the munis to come up with, I don't think they have the political will and they're, and so I think private capital has to, has to play a role in this. And so that's right. where I think the privates come in. Um, uh, and, but it's, when you said M and A and things like that, you know, I've had some of these um, uh, tech firms on, like like Fathom and Valor Water, right. that have these these really great ways to collect data and and you know use data to optimize systems. And one of the, one of my thoughts is once you start getting that kind of data, that could be incredibly useful in uh, in, in trying to uh, consolidate a lot of these fragmented market pieces um are you seeing any movement in that in that sphere yeah absolutely i think um we're we've done a fair amount of work in that space both through consulting and we've done some you know research as well uh for our clients ongoing clients we find we're if you want to call it smart water you know people define it differently in various ways but um yeah, ranging from the metering hardware to the data and analytics, we find there's a huge opportunity. Part of it is just market conditions. I think uh, the utilities are under stress. They have huge capital and operating requirements uh, coming down the pipe. So they need to find ways to be, whether it be public or private, need to find ways to be more efficient in what they do. So instead of ripping up a kilometer of pipe to figure out where the leak is, um, to understand what their customers are doing, what are their, where's the, you know, water going at what time of day, what's the energy cost? I think understanding that both from a in the field um, pipe network maintenance to even back office predictive 
um, a predictive understanding or a predictive analysis for the utilities for pricing, for you know all the various forecasting uh, needs that they have. I think it's really it's incredible, and so I think that in itself, it's it's it is definitely um, at its early stages, you know, and you can tell just by what's happening. You've got the hard. Uh, the metering hardware companies like an Itron or a Mueller, these guys, they're all developing their own data software and platforms. And then you've got even the communications companies like a Verizon or Sprint looking to tra help transmit that data or move data. They're interested in that. And then you've got the Silicon Valley types. I think you just mentioned the you know, venture funded companies that in many ways provide an interesting solution because in some cases, they're technology agnostic. So as utilities have all these different systems in place, if these companies can overlay their software, they can pull from all these different sources and roll it up into one you know, report format, let's say. And it just arms the utility manager or operators with that much more information. And you know, it is the internet of things, as, as cliche as that might be. It's true. I mean, everything from Nest thermostats to um, all this other data information, how people are, you know, Fitbits to, you know, wearables as a whole. There's data out there. So the technology is there. The harder part is going to be convincing utilities to adopt these and pay for these new solutions. Yeah, agree, agree completely. Um, well, I'm sorry I took us off on that tangent. <laughs> I, 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 I was just really interested in, in hearing your thoughts on that because I think that can, that the, the, all the information that's available could really help uh, help us gain some efficiencies in the sector. Um, what what's kind of driving the spend in, in your mind? I, I assume like environmental regulations are on the are on the list. What what's driving all these uh, CIPs? Um, you know, I, look, the U.S. water sector is old, and what's ended up happening is, you know, the pipes have been deployed over the past you know hundred plus years. Different materials have been introduced over time. Uh, the earlier ones have longer shelf lives, and the more recent ones have shorter shelf lives. And what seems to be the case is that uh, the roosters are coming home, and or the chickens are coming home to roost. And so what's happening is that the pipes and systems are getting old, and they need to either be replaced or rehabilitated. Uh, so that's one area. I think you touched upon the environmental regulations. The EPA is starting to squeeze uh, wastewater uh, utilities on their on their effluents and their impacts on surface water. Uh, and then I think you know population. You know the the, the U.S. is not getting smaller population wise. You, when you start looking at the Sun Belt everywhere from Florida all the way across to Southern California. Population increases are incredible, growing at you know 30 to 75 percent in some cases by 2030. So the the infrastructure may be already in place to support some of that right now, but when you take into account you know when when everybody moves in, then sooner or later they're going to have to meet the whole population's needs. I mean the assumption is in the U.S. is that everybody is connected to water and wastewater. So that, that's kind of the baseline and the expectations for everybody. So uh, there's gonna have to be a lot of spend going forward.
Yeah, yeah. In, in all this data that you guys have collected, are have you been able to uh, kind of discern out some of the characteristics or factors of, of what kind of the best utilities uh, are doing in terms of their CIPs and their infrastructure issues? Um, depends how you want to measure that. I think, <laughs> you know, my starting point would be how well do they even report their own information? Uh, it's It goes to show you, it's frustrating when you compare all these utilities and you look and you say, I mean, I'll give you an example, and this is not because I live here, it's just, and I'm not from Boston, so I'm not gonna vouch for it, but Boston Water and Sewer. They have a CIP that's actually pretty transparent. They break it out, they provide all the projects, they tell you where or how they're spending their money going forward. Um, that is really valuable information. And I think, you know, I can't speak to why it came to be, but it is pretty transparent as far as I can tell. But then you go to some others. Now, since I'm speaking negatively, I'm not going to say exactly who. But um, <laughs> they, uh, there are others that they'll give you a handwritten document practically and say, oh, here's what our numbers are. And they just throw it all in. And there's really no clarity as to what they're doing. And I think that in itself is one of the – that's what makes the water sector difficult is I think you've had guests previously that have talked about information and how often the EPA even reports information every five years. I mean, it's kind of ludicrous, quite honestly. And when you've got, you know, say 50,000 water utilities that record and track their spending in so many different ways, I would, it seems to me that it's difficult to even go to the federal government or anybody and say, we need to spend, this is the money we need this is what we need as a whole, here's what the problem is. And yeah, th that would go a long way. And you know, can Bluefield Research do that? I mean, I would like to think so, but it's a lot of information in staying ahead of it. And when the utilities don't even know or have difficulty stating exactly what they're planning on spending their money on, um, it's a little frustrating. So I guess I'm, I'm not avoiding your question, is what makes a good one, those that have good, information that are transparent and what they're doing. But I think, you know, the larger, I mean, you, could, you would imagine the larger utilities, I mean, some are definitely more sophisticated than others uh, out west where they're tracking what's happening. They're tracking, they're using small water technologies, um, both for back office needs, but also for, you know, repairing or keeping track of what's happening in their network and their flows. Uh, some are, deploying wastewater reuse because they have supply demands that are growing and they've got a resource that can be tapped in a drought-stricken area. Um, you know, are they deploying desalination? Because, you know, at the end of the day, similar to the power sector, portfolio strategies work. You know, you mix it up and then you're less susceptible to drought or network breakdowns in some cases. So. Um, that's how I would measure it. You know, I don't want to pinpoint anybody specifically. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get it. And that's, that's, I think very good. You know, the, the, when you are using words, transparent and things like that, I also think of utilities that, that are engaging with their customers more right. rather than kind of hiding behind it. You know, like, like I think DC water does a great job of that 
That's another really good one. You're exactly right. Yeah. And so, and you kind of mentioned uh, prior guests who've kind of called out the, <laughs> called out like our information gathering. That's why I like Charles Fishman so much is he's, he's not kind of in the water field, but he cares about it. And he's, He's uh, willing to, to go out there and say, look, you know, come on, water industry. You guys got to start doing it. You know, let's get in the 21st century here. Um, yeah, I, you know, it is one of those things. And like I said, I, prior to this, I came from the power sector, um, at least doing market research in that sector. And a lot of it was focused on the renewable energy. And I get it. There are 50,000 publicly owned water utilities in, in the U and water utilities in the U.S., they're, what, 4,500 power utilities, so they're a lot less. But the information, and re, you know, you can go to California and figure out, you know, what are the energy flows. And I, I think what we're trying to do, and what's interesting about this is companies are trying to develop strategies in this market. And so you can't keep saying, you know, it depends. It depends on the market or it depends. It's like, you know, the CEO of GE or Evoqua or Xylem or Paul or Danaher, um, they need to understand what's happening. So to say it depends on the situation is not what well, we, we don't think that's a good answer uh, if you're trying to develop a business strategy. And it's so it's exact, you're exactly right. Figuring out ways to be transparent will go a long way. Yeah. Yeah. Reese, you've been absolutely fantastic today. I, I, I say this, I, I do with every guest, I pretty much, I, I learn something new, even if I think I don't know the area very well, I always learn something new and, and you are no different than the others. I've, I've learned a tremendous amount in speaking with you and I really appreciate your time. Um, so for, for those folks who, who want to find out more about you and Bluefield research and, and the products you offer, where can they go to get that information? So as technology has allowed us, you can go to www.bluefieldresearch.com, and it provides a lot of information about the company. I think even my background is on there as well, if you're curious about that. Cool. All right. Well, Reese, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, again, you were fantastic, and I, I thank you for your time. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. You betcha. Bye. Bye. Well, that was my interview with Reese Tisdale. He was fantastic, and I learned a lot, and hope you did too. Well, I'm still buried at work. We closed on a new house, but we don't get possession uh, until kind of late July. So uh, we're very excited to get moved in, but that's kind of the long way of saying that I don't have any real uh, solid takeaways for you other than thinking about the magnitude of our water infrastructure needs. They're staggering, and the good thing is, though, that more and more people are realizing how important water infrastructure is. So hopefully we start to see an increase in funding for those capital improvement plans that Reese mentioned. Um, well, please let me know what interested you about the podcast by posting a comment on the show notes, which will be posted at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 88. You can email me at david at thewatervalues.com, tweet at me at DTM1993, or tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. Really appreciate your support and, and your spreading of the word about the podcast. And, you know, if you've been listening and enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a rating and a review on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, whatever um, podcast directory you're listening on. And please consider supporting the podcast by leaving a donation. You can find that there's a little button on the on the right side of the website. When you go there, you can scroll down a little bit and it's on it's on the just a little gold donate button. So thank you so much 
for those of you who have already supported the podcast. And, you know, if you choose to, to donate, that really helps keep the podcast going by defraying the cost of web hosting, media hosting, and some of the other costs that go along with uh, producing the podcast. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.